This episode is sponsored once again by BetterHelp. Now perhaps many of us out there are still finding certain things difficult in life. It might not necessarily just be the fallout from the pandemic or us being affected by the events that we see across the world. All sorts of things come to try us, don't they? And anything can weigh heavily on you. So, and this isn't self-help that's been advocated here, I must stress, if something is preventing you from achieving your wants or goals or stopping you being happy, then perhaps that's something that BetterHelp can help you with. With a broad range of expertise available, specialists in all manner of issues and some which may not be locally available to you, what BetterHelp does is assesses any issues you may be facing and then matches you up with your own best-suited licensed professional therapist for professional counselling, with your needs firmly in mind. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating with your counsellor in a confidential online environment, someone who you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, who you can message anytime you want or feel that you need to, and from whom you can expect timely, thoughtful responses back from. It's very much more affordable a service than any traditional offline counselling and it's available worldwide, so clients anywhere can use it if they wish. If it's even needed, BetterHelp has financial aid available for its use. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash T-C-E. Hello all and a very warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room based true crime podcast that seeks out for your earbuds those tales of true crime that are often obscure or long forgotten, sometimes unbelievable, from the deepest darkest corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The world's smallest cow, Peaks, is here with me as well as ever. And most importantly, because it's me talking to myself like a bloody simpleton otherwise, is you guys, the listeners who keep the show moving forward and have now gotten us into year five with it. It's always wonderful having you joining me here as you have today, which I thank you very kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then you and your nearest and dearest are all safe, you're all well and you're all good. So, I start this time around with the news that tickets for CrimeCon 2022 in London in June next year are now available. 
where once again you can see myself and a whole load of your other favourite show hosts in attendance, as well as undoubtedly what promises to be an incredible amount of distinguished guest authors and speakers from the world of true crime in attendance for the weekend. Now this year's event was great, what a fab weekend we had, and the next time, well, myself and some of the other show hosts have been talking and putting our heads together about stuff, and we have all kinds of ideas for stuff that we can collaborate on to try and make it an even better event next time. It's not something you want to miss, trust me. If you're not fast, you're last though, and it really does pay to get in with your tickets early, which the organisers have kindly once again offered that if you do, and you use the code ENTHUSIAST at checkout, you'll get at a decent 10% discount off the total cost. Plus, if you let me know that you have done, then nearer the event I'll get a welcome and thank you pack sent out to you, which will have all sorts of stuff in it, promise you. So, the episode this week was originally intended as this month's Patreon episode, then I decided to substitute another tale for that one, and then I thought, being October and all that, I decided as I often do at the last minute, to change that one as well, and to bring in something a bit more mysterious and eerie in fitting with Halloween. But I don't just discard these tales of course, you may get them for the next episode, or at a date in the future. The running order of the show can be very haphazard at times, and as much as I love to have a schedule in place, it doesn't always pan out like that. But that bonus tale will be out before the month is. So on the subject of Patreon, massive thanks to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show this time around, with shoutouts going out for Anuka Ladenpera and Mark Clements, plus Sasha Vogt, Joe Melton and Joey B, who have each opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I've said anybody's name wrong there. Thanks all, it's so kind of you to do so, and hopefully you've begun cracking on with getting through the series of unreleased bonus episodes that being a supporter gets you, with this month's one looming up soon too. Now if titles such as The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell, The Cannibal and the Cowboy, Operation Magnesium, or An Offering to the Angels, if they tickle parts of you that other beers just cannot reach, and you want to hear these and several other tales for yourselves, and there are some crazy tales there too, then it isn't like trying to grow hair on a rock to do so, it's absolutely piss easy. Quicker than a one-legged person hits the floor when they're doing the okey-cokey, you can be hearing these and more by heading over to Patreon and simply seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. It's got the same show logo and all that, but always remember to add the podcast suffix when you're looking for it, or you can just use the ever-present clickable link that's in the episode show notes each and every time, and that will take you right to it. So, the tale that I've selected for this time around is a fairly unfamiliar one that, due to a few quirks with it, I believe should be much more well-known than it is. But saying that though, it is one that has been suggested to me by a couple of listeners, and it was an unfamiliar one for me. So when I found it in my library after some searching it took, it absolutely screamed showed me the tale did, and so its time has come here on The Enthusiast. Now the episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including that of a sexual nature, and including quotations that contain homophobic references that some listeners may find offensive, disturbing, and or distressing. So please use discretion whilst listening. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for a tale that I've entitled 
carbon copy. We're off back some ways to the start of the 1960s for our tale this time around, and to firstly the town of Chesterfield in the UK county of Derbyshire, a county we visited before on the show, most notably last series in the four-part tale A Family's Fight, which is still in the back catalogue if you've not heard it yet. A couple of stats about the place, Chesterfield is Derbyshire's second largest settlement after the city of Derby, and perhaps is most famous for the crooked church spire of the Church of St Mary's and All Saints, which in 1994 also became the UK's only representative in the Association of the Twisted Spires of Europe. But that's a bloody thrilling Christmas party, isn't it? Where out of the 72 member churches of this, it is deemed to have the greatest lean and twist, a 45 degree twist which causes the tip to lean some 9 feet 6 inches off its centre. The church's twisted spire also gave the town's football club, Chesterfield FC, their nickname, the Spireites. It's also the town where the first Burton's menswear store opened 118 years ago in 1903, and famous figures to hail from there include Olav Baden-Powell, who was the first chief guide, Former world darts champion and first player to hit a televised nine-dart finish, John Lowe. Barbara Castle, the Labour Transport Minister who introduced the breathalyzer in 1967. Former motorhead drummer, Phil, Filthy Animal Taylor. Celebrated actor, Sir John Hurt. And my favourite of the absolute lot, former glamour model, Joanne Guest. Proper classic 90s. Now the daftest bit of trivia that I could find, and which I'm sure you'll all sleep much better tonight knowing, is that the black and white chequered band seen around police helmets and caps is accredited to Sir Percy Sillito, who was Chief Constable of Chesterfield from 1923 to 1925. Living the dream, eh? William Elliot, or Bill as he was more commonly known, was an inoffensive, ordinary sort of man. The type that if he passed you in the street every single day, you'd still hardly notice him. Serene and quiet, he was a confirmed bachelor of 60 years of age and a clerk by profession at the nearby Thornbridge Hall stately home. So precise in almost everything that he did that you could even set your watch by him, a real creature of habit, when he failed to return from his usual Saturday evening out at Chesterfield Spread Eagle Pub on Beatwell Street, on the evening of the 11th of June 1960, William's family began to worry. In fact, so concerned were his family, which consisted of his two spinster sisters, Martha and Sarah, with whom William lived at Number 9 Haddon Road, a house in the town of Bakewell, near Chesterfield. So concerned were they, that by midnight, they telephoned police to report him as missing, fearing that he'd been involved in an accident in his new car, and I set a model bubble car. Martha Elliot told officers who arrived around shortly afterwards to take details. He went off in his bubble car at about 7 o'clock, as he always does, and he's still not back. He was only going down the pub. Drink driving laws were pretty much non-existent then. Now police who responded to the report logged a full description of William and took note of his vehicle, an ivory-coloured Isetta model bubble car, registration number KLU-488, 
and reassured the sisters that William had most likely had car trouble of some sort and was perhaps stuck somewhere, miles from a telephone, but would almost certainly be back soon, so there was no need for them to worry. But once the police had left, William didn't come rolling in shortly after, and the first telephone call that the sisters did receive, at 3.45am that Sunday morning, wasn't from their brother telling them that he was stuck somewhere. It was from the same police officers who had been around to theirs just hours previously, who were now ringing to say that they had just discovered William's abandoned bubble car in Park Road in Chesterfield, some 11.5 miles from his home. Now 20 minutes before this call, a resident of Park Road, Fred Clark, had been awakened by a terrific crash. He described later, It was a noise like a small explosion, but the thing that struck me most was that after the crash, there was just complete silence. There was no footsteps, no moans or cries, nothing. Woken with a start then, Fred looked through his bedroom window to the street below and saw a little Isetta model bubble car lying on its passenger side a few feet away from the lamppost that it had crashed into. There was nobody around the stricken vehicle, and as Fred hurriedly placed on his dressing gown and rushed outside to help, he saw that there was no one inside it either. Heading next door, he roused his neighbour with frantic knocking, and only a brief time later, Fred's neighbour, who was connected to the telephone, had contacted the police. They had arrived shortly afterwards, and a check of the registration number revealed that this was the vehicle of one William Elliot from Bakewell, who had been reported as missing just a few hours before. But of William, there was no sign. So if he wasn't there, how could William Elliot's driverless bubble car have crashed into a lamppost in a deserted street in the middle of the night? Park Road, where the car had been found, bordered a particularly unsavoury, shall we say, area of Chesterfield known as the Queen's Park Annex, which was at the time notorious for being the centre of late-night goings-on and unsocial activities, and residents there were used to pretty much anything happening. Reports from the time describe it as the equivalent to Robocop-era Detroit. Like, I'm not saying it was rough or anything, or crime-ridden, but if women went out and bought tights, they would be asked first, what size head do you want? Do you know what I mean? Now, there is an area of my hometown that has the same name, and perhaps somewhat unfairly has a similar reputation. I know it's no utopia at all, I'm not, I'm not trying to dress it up or anything, but there are pockets of everywhere that are as rough as a badger's arse, aren't they? So apologies to Chesterfield there if you're from there or anything. I'm not singling you out at all. Everywhere has a bit of a rough patch, doesn't it? Now, although the interior of the bubble car was bloodstained, with traces showing over the seats and the upholstery, and although a set of lower dentures was found inside, three bloodstained raincoats and a pair of shoes visible in the front, unbelievably, police at first didn't suspect that there was anything untoward about this and that it was nothing but a straightforward, albeit serious, RTC. Even the fact that the laces of the shoes knotted them together and they were wedged against the console didn't boggle their minds too much at that point. They simply worked upon the theory that after being involved in the accident, perhaps dazed or concussed, the driver had simply gotten out of the vehicle and had wandered off perhaps to make his way for assistance somewhere nearby. 
So, a cursory search of nearby gardens and the residential roads in the Queen's Park vicinity to see if the injured driver had perhaps collapsed somewhere in these was made, but to no avail. However, he couldn't have gotten far on foot and police were certain that he would turn up soon. A check of local hospitals was made, but revealed nothing. No one had been admitted as the result of a traffic accident, nor anyone matching William's description at all, and eventually, police decided to call Martha and Sarah Elliot once again. Although concerned, the absence of any body made them refuse to believe that it was the news that they desperately didn't want to hear, and they settled themselves down for a sleepless night, convinced that William would soon either turn up at home or at least telephone them, complaining that his vehicle had been stolen. Because that has to be what happened, right? As dawn broke that Sunday morning and sunlight began to shine down on the abandoned crash vehicle, there was still no sight or sound of the missing William. But just after midday, some seven miles away from the scene of the collision, that was to drastically change. It was at that time that a cyclist out for a day of fresh air and scenery began thinking about finding a suitable pub on his journey where he could stop and have a pint and grab a spot of lunch also. By that point, he'd reached Kerbar Edge, a rock formation just north of Chatsworth Park in a place called Clodhall Lane, a rural and remote area between the villages of Barlow and Old Brampton near the main A621 Sheffield Road where the cyclist's thoughts of a Sunday afternoon pint were shattered by him noticing the figure of a man lying at the edge of the road by its bordering stone wall, his face buried in the grass. Most likely thinking that this was a traveller of the road who had hung one on and was simply sleeping it off, the cyclist took a closer glance, only to see that the figure wasn't sleeping anything off at all. He was very clearly dead, most likely a result of the very apparent, terrible head injuries that the cyclist could see to him, as well as the dark ring of blood on the grass below. He also noticed that although the prone figure was otherwise fully clothed, he wore no shoes on his feet. Now at that time, and it is still pretty desolate today like, but back then Clodhall Lane was so remote that the cyclist had to jump back onto his bike and make a two mile journey to the nearest village, Old Brampton in order to raise the alarm and report his discovery. When police arrived at the scene only a short time later, it was soon established that the figure laying at the side of the road was that of the missing William Elliot, whose shoes and overcoat were laying in his crashed bubble car some miles away in Park Road. But what exactly had happened to him, and how did he manage to get to such a desolate remote spot? in the middle of the night. Police had the sad task of informing his sisters of the discovery, confirming their by that time worst fears, and when spoken to, they tearfully informed officers that William was a gentle soul who had no enemies, who kept to himself and busied himself with his work, and that his only social life was a couple of evenings each week spent down at the Spread Eagle, the Three Horseshoes pub in Parker's Row, and a couple of other Chesterfield pubs. Now inquiries made around these places established that William Elliot was a fairly well-known figure in them, mainly for his generosity, it was remarked. 
He would often stand round after round of drinks for people without any thought of the cost, and although he wasn't much of a drinker himself, and would invariably only usually have a shandy, more than one person spoken to in the pubs remarked to police that William often carried a well-stocked wallet with him, which usually contained a bankroll. Now, Elliot's wallet was missing from his clothing, and it was not found in the wreckage of his car either. It seemed likely that he'd been attacked and robbed, and viciously attacked with it. His body bore some 28 marks of violence upon it, and in the words of the examining pathologist, Dr. David Price, it was his opinion that the killer, a powerfully built man, had repeatedly stamped upon the right side of William's head whilst he lay in a prone position on the floor. The post-mortem was to show that the kicks and stamps had been delivered with great force. William's nose had been broken, his jaw had been broken in two places, and there were several cuts and marks behind his ear that were determined to have been made by a heel, so an almost maniacal fury would be a much more apt description than great force. As a 40-strong team of detectives began a murder inquiry, led by Detective Superintendent Leonard Stretton. In tandem with a deep look at William Elliot's life, the standard house-to-house -house inquiries were made in the area, a list of local men with a history of violence was scrutinised, and inquiries were as far-reaching as the Mansfield and Nottingham areas, with police checking dry cleaners to see if anyone had brought in any clothing that had been heavily blood-stained, as the killer undoubtedly would have been. And soon came the first of what were to be several bizarre twists to our tale. It was established that a week before the murder, a 51-year-old bus cleaner named William Atkinson had also been savagely attacked, robbed and dumped in shrubbery in Boythorpe Road, a road smack bang in the notorious Queen's Park Annex, and less than a stone's throw from Park Road, where William Elliot's bubble car had been found. Now it transpired also that William Atkinson was not only a friend of William Elliot and a drinking companion of his at the Spread Eagle, but he was also a dead ringer for him. In fact, so much did they look alike, even down to the similar type of glasses that both wore, that people often thought he was Elliot's double. There were other striking similarities between the attack on Mr Atkinson and the attack on William Elliot as well. Mr Atkinson had been discovered late on the previous Saturday night, lying face down in a shrubbery, with very severe head and chest injuries. The majority of them later established to have been caused by kicking or stamping. He was semi-conscious when he was discovered, however, and he managed to tell the people who discovered him that he thought he had been attacked by two men, such had been the assault. He later told, I quote, the police theory is that the man who attacked me is the killer. I don't think I'd walked more than a few yards from the pub when I remember something happening. The next thing I really remember is waking up in hospital the next afternoon. Police told me that they dragged me from the shrubbery at Queen's Park Annex. Mr Atkinson also remembered, and this was to later prove quite crucial, that during the assault, his attacker had mentioned something about being in the armed forces, although he wasn't in uniform. He managed to issue a description of a six-foot-tall, powerfully built male in his early twenties, wearing a cheap dark suit with his dark hair worn swept back, 
and whose voice seemed strangely familiar to the victim. As before the attack, Mr. Atkinson said also that he thought he heard a soft-sounding voice call him by his known name, Bill, the same name as William Elliot had been known by. He went on, All I know is that if I heard his voice again, I would recognise it. It is mild, with a Derbyshire accent. Police have told me that as I'm the double of the dead man, a maniac must have been after Mr. Elliot and attacked me by mistake. So, as both William Atkinson and William Elliot had been in the Spread Eagle pub earlier in the evening on the nights of their respective attacks, police now had to consider the possibility. Had someone who had also been in the Spread Eagle pub on each respective Saturday night had a grudge against William Atkinson, had attacked him a week before and left him for what he must have likely thought was for dead due to such a savage assault, only to see with shock who he thought was him fine and well the following Saturday and had decided to finish the job off. Was William Elliot the victim of a case of mistaken identity? Now police were pretty soon to produce a possible reason for the killing and what was unique about the murder of William Elliot was the motive for it. Back in 1960 Britain was just moving over a chasm from the straight-laced morality of the 1950s and it was about to embrace the swinging 60s which of course I wasn't around to see but it does have some absolutely fabulous music coming from it though and we all know it was a decade when the traditional moral code held in the preceding one was to change beyond all recognition. It was to be a full seven years later that homosexuality was declassified as an offence in the United Kingdom, and back in 1960 it was still illegal in all forms, even amongst consenting adults, with the general punishment for it being a term of imprisonment. Now it feels draconian to write and even read out such a thing, let alone try and get your head around that this was actually once legislation, but there you go, it was a really different time back then. I'm sure you'll agree. But even though back in 1960 it was still unlawful, the gay community were defiantly beginning to come out, regardless of the risk of any punishment, and as such, almost every town in the country had at least one known gay pub that was much frequented. One such of these pubs, Chesterfield police had identified, was the Spread Eagle. Chesterfield CID had at the time drawn up a list of known gay men, but had limited their list merely to those who were suspected of sexual involvement with youths or boys. William Elliot was not a name on this list, however. Indeed, there was no conclusive proof even that he was gay, despite evidence found at his post-mortem in the form of marks to the rear of his body that equally could have been self-inflicted or made by a female lover. He was recorded simply in police files as a man who frequented what was known as a gay pub. Police considered that Elliot almost certainly was a gay man, however. At that time, a single bachelor of his years was liable to be labelled as such anyway, and his murder is believed to be one of the first to be considered as gay bashing, a killing fuelled by a hatred for the gay community which wasn't really to become more commonplace in the UK until the 1970s. So, aware that this was a relatively new motive that they were dealing with, and one that seemed likely based on the circumstantial evidence, 
Chesterfield police were reluctant to release information about this line of inquiry for fear that it might lead to copycat killings. The theory they were now working on then was that on the evening of his death, William Elliot had picked up a younger man in the Spread Eagle pub and taken him away in his bubble car to a quiet remote spot, most probably for sex, and then, either before or possibly after, a violent argument had followed. Elliot's would-be lover had violently attacked and killed the older man, and then taken his car away, perhaps to dump the body in remote Clodhall Lane, only to crash it some seven miles later upon returning to the Chesterfield area. This would explain the distance between Elliot's body and his crashed car. So, the young man he had picked up, and a witness came forward to say that they had indeed seen Elliot talking to a younger man that evening in the Three Horseshoes pub in the town, had to have been the killer. But who was he? For a considerable period of time afterwards, undercover police officers frequented gay pubs in the Chesterfield area, but not a single clue was to emerge from these combined efforts. Meanwhile, the man responsible for both of the attacks that I've just described, the second one of them fatal, was now labelled as one of the most dangerous men in the country, but he wasn't long in revealing himself. Just four days after the murder of William Elliot, the man, a 21-year-old Chesterfield resident and home-on-leave soldier named Michael Copeland, was walking with his girlfriend of only a few days, Carol Bright, in a local wood called Engine Hollow, where the couple had just been to have sex. Suddenly, a pensive-looking Copeland told the girl, I've done something, and I've got to tell someone. If I tell you, you won't see anything, will you? Can you guess what it is? Take a good look at me, because the next time you see me, I might be swinging on the gallows. Clutching and twisting his belt, a strange look in his eyes, Copeland said, What would you say if I told you I'd murdered a man at Birdholm? I killed a man upon the moors on Saturday night. Now, although at 16, Carol was somewhat younger than the powerfully built six foot two Copeland, and she hardly knew him, she'd already become aware that he had a reputation for having a violent temper, someone who was known to the police for several scuffles and brawls he'd been involved in when drinking, even on one occasion throwing someone through a shop window. But who confesses to murder just like that? No one, Carol thought. And as such, although somewhat frightened by his manner, she didn't believe him, putting the outburst solely down to a young man simply bragging, and she walked off. Copeland soon caught up with her, and laughing, told her, You didn't believe me, did you? Don't you think I'm a good actor? I only told you to see if you loved me, but you don't, do you? But once he'd escorted her home, that evening, going over what he'd said in her mind as she lay in bed, Carol found herself unable to sleep. The more she thought about the chance remark that Copeland had made, despite his absolutely bollocks-sounding explanation to her, the more uneasy she felt about things. She had heard about the bubble car murder, as newspapers were describing it, as Copeland had first mentioned it to her on the Sunday. She knew that Copeland lived near Park Road, where the bubble car had been found, and she knew that when he was home on leave, he often frequented the Spread Eagle pub, so it just didn't sit right with her that it was merely foundless bragging this. 
but what if it wasn't? Eventually, she came to the decision that nothing would be lost if she discreetly mentioned the conversation to another person to share her concerns. So the following morning, Carol said, On the Sunday after the murder, I got talking to Michael Copeland and there was talk of the bubble car murder. Michael brought the subject up. He had a paper about it and he asked what I thought. I can't remember what I replied, but it was just a short talk. Then mentioning what he'd said to her in the wood, Carol continued, He said the police had been to see him and that it was about this case. Michael said he wanted to tell me something, but he didn't know whether to or not. I said if he wasn't sure, he shouldn't tell me. I didn't want to stay in the wood. He had his belt in his hand, twisting it, and I wanted to go. The person that she told this to was an officer from Chesterfield Police, who were extremely intrigued when she mentioned the name Michael Copeland and what he'd said, for they knew Copeland all too well. Since he left school at age 15 to work down the local pit as a haulage hand, he'd received several criminal convictions for the likes of housebreaking, theft, illegal possession of a firearm and assault, receiving borstal training for two counts of these in 1956 and 1957 respectively. In 1959, perhaps seizing the opportunity for a fresh start, he'd enlisted in the army to complete his national service joining the number one signals regiment and at the present time june 1960 he was back home in chesterfield on leave from his unit which was at the time stationed in caithness barracks in verdun in germany copeland was picked up at his home by detectives shortly after six o'clock the following morning and taken to chesterfield police station where for the next 14 hours he was questioned at length, but he steadfastly denied any involvement in the killing of William Elliot, although by that time police had several statements from witnesses who could place Copeland as being in the Spread Eagle pub on the night of the murder, and from others who claimed to have seen him in a fish and chip shop later that evening with bloodstains on his shirt collar. He admitted being in the pub and the fish and chip shop, offering the story that he'd been involved in a fight with a group of teddy boys which explained the blood stain into his collar, and that he claimed he had unsuccessfully attempted to remove with petrol. Asked about what he had said to Carol Bright, Copeland replied, I do not know anything about the murder except what I read in the newspapers. It was said as a joke when I told her I'd done the murder. I did it to find out what intelligence she's got. But without a shred of evidence whatsoever, just a lingering suspicion that this could be their killer before them, and unable to break Copeland, police were forced to release him from custody. As he walked away from the police station, Copeland complained to a local reporter from the Derbyshire Times, Jerry Dodd, who was hanging around outside hoping to pick up tidbits for a story. I know nothing about this. I think it's all wrong the way police have been questioning me, and I'm fed up of it. Now it has to be pointed out that regardless of what Michael Copeland said, he wasn't just being singled out for special attention, let's drop everything, let's put it all on this guy. He was in fact to be just one of some 15,000 men ultimately interviewed by the team hunting the bubble car killer, as the case had by that time become known. However, if this killer was Michael Copeland, then for the moment police had nothing to pin him to the murder, and the following month, 
July 1960, off back he went to his unit in Germany, whilst the investigation into William Elliot's murder continued. So we skip now four months forward to the next twist in our tale, and this part opened in Germany, coincidentally, where one Michael Copeland was now in the final year of his national service. Shortly before 9pm on the evening of Sunday, November the 13th, 1960, a young German courting couple, 15-year-old apprentice engineer Gunther Helmbrecht and his girlfriend, 15-year-old Inge Hoppe, emerged from a cinema on the Lindupstrasse in Verden after having seen a screening of the Hitchcock film Rebecca and decided to take an evening stroll along the bank of the nearby river Aller. They walked through a wood that bordered Caithness Barracks, the local British army base, and decided to stop in a shelter in a clearing here, this being a well-known spot for courting couples to have some together time. There was another couple in there at the time that they knew, a youth named Adolf Struve and his girlfriend, and so Gunther and Inge waited for them to leave, which they did shortly afterwards. Alone, the couple had just begun making love, when Inge gasped and motioned for Gunther to stop. For only a short distance away, someone was stood, watching them in the darkness. They couldn't make out the figure too clearly, mainly just being in silhouette about 30 feet away from them, but it appeared to them both that it was a figure wearing a British Army uniform. The terrified Inge ran away, and as Gunther went to follow her, the figure sprung from the darkness and knocked him to the ground with a savage blow to the neck as Inga continued running in terror. At the edge of the wood, the girl thankfully met four of her friends who were waiting for a bus, and almost fallen into their arms, gasped out what had just happened. They managed to persuade her to lead them back to the spot where this had occurred, and it was in the clearing that they found Gunther bleeding from several vicious wounds to the throat. Although one of the party, Hans-Dieter Varelman, ran off to raise the alarm and to request assistance, whilst the others carried him to the road, Gunther was too badly injured, and died only moments later, before the ambulance had arrived. Died in front of his girlfriend and his friends. The later post-mortem revealed that he'd not only been stabbed multiple times in the throat, but had another three knife wounds that had each pierced his heart, and another 24 stab wounds to different parts of his body where he'd been attacked in a frenzy. Maniacal isn't really the word, is it? The Royal Military Police, not the best in the world RAF police, I must, I must add, in conjunction with German civil police, swiftly moved in on Caithness Barracks, and immediately took an interest in a young soldier who the same evening had staggered into the guardroom with a stab wound to his leg. A young soldier named Michael Copeland. Asked to explain the wound, Copeland said that he'd been attacked by two German civilians. Now it was not an altogether uncommon occurrence this though, and as a result, with no evidence to the contrary, police were inclined to have to believe him, despite interviewing RMP officer Captain Hubert Lambert being convinced that Copeland's story was a pack of lies. As a matter of course, at Captain Lambert's insistence, 
Copeland stood in no less than three identification parades attended by Gunther's girlfriend Inga, but he wasn't picked out by her in any of them, further reinforcing the police view that Copeland was not the attacker. The police also searched the barracks and the woods adjoining it extensively, but no trace of a murder weapon was ever found, and the case was soon quickly filed away as unsolved. A few months later, in early 1961, Michael Copeland himself was demobbed and off back to the UK, his two-year term of national service complete. He returned to Chesterfield, moving back in with his father, a retired miner, in St Augustine's Crescent, and very soon found work as a lorry driver at local Markham Colliery. And there, he may very well have lived out the rest of his life as a free man in the knowledge that he'd gotten away with murder not once, but twice. He may well have done, but for yet another twist in the tale, which began with almost a prelude, and shortly after returning home, Michael Copeland once again spoke to the same local newspaper reporter he had the year before, Jerry Dodd, but this time holding a conversation in which he recounted the story of the killing in Germany of the youth, Gunther Helmbrecht, outside Caithness Barracks. Holding court, Copeland told how because on the same evening he himself had been stabbed in the leg, even dropping his pants and showing the reporter the vicious looking scar, he had been questioned over the killing and had even stood on a number of identity parades that Gunther's girlfriend had failed to pick him out at, so he'd been released. Now at no time in so many words did Copeland admit his responsibility for the killing, but his description of the crime and how military police had held him and interrogated him left the reporter in no doubt that it almost certainly was Copeland who had killed the young German. He'd also brought into the same conversation the link that when they were questioning him, at no time did military authorities appear to know anything about the killing of William Elliot or that Copeland had been questioned as a suspect in the case, another murder just four months before. Now the question posed here surely is, why not? For if bases had been touched and the authorities in Germany had thought to get in touch with the UK to check any involvement with police that Michael Copeland may have had, then they would have learned a great deal more about him, including this fact, and they subsequently may have acted differently in their approach to him as a suspect. And perhaps if that had happened, then perhaps the next twist in our tale may not have. Like Sam Beckett, we skip forward now once again to Wednesday, March the 29th, 1961, just two months after Michael Copeland had been demobbed and returned to civilian life back in the Chesterfield area. At 8.40 that morning, a resident of Chesterfield's Park Road, the very same Park Road where less than 10 months before, William Elliot's crashed bubble car had been discovered, set off for work and noticed a very distinct looking pre-war model black Morris Oxford car parked on the crest of the gradually sloping hill. Being a collector's 1930s model, the vehicle, registration number JN230, had become a distinct and familiar car around the Chesterfield area over the previous few months, but here it looked abandoned, it was parked haphazardly and had its lights off. Inside it was a heavily blood-stained tweed overcoat, but of the driver, there was no sign at all. He was found, or his body was rather, 
almost at the exact same time as his car was, but some seven miles away, in Clodhall Lane. Less than a hundred yards from where the body of William Elliot had been discovered the previous year. Now although there have been several cases where a killer has struck in the same place, up to then, never had one apparently killed in the same place, but then taken a car and left it in almost exactly the same place also. What are the chances in such a rural area? And police's spidey senses went off big time. This time, the victim was identified as one George Gerald Stobbs, a 48-year-old experimental chemist who lived in Mansfelt Road in Chesterfield, and who was employed in a laboratory at Chesterfield Sweet Factory, Trebor. Like William Elliot before him, Stobbs had severe head and chest injuries, some 19 different marks of violence upon him, once again consistent with the victim being brutally kicked and stamped upon, and was missing items of his property. But that was all he appeared to have in common with William Elliot. There was an age difference between the two, and Stobbs was a married father of two, whose sons attended a boarding school in the London area. Educated at Dulwich College, he had been sent to Chesterfield from London by Trebor just nine months previously, and was only expected to stay in the area for just a year. In the short time that he'd lived up there, however, he'd become well-liked, and neighbours who knew him described him as the nicest of men and a happy family man. Now you don't have to just be that nosy old bastard from Murder She Wrote to think that the bubble car killer had struck once again here and had staged this second murder as a carbon copy of the first. So the bubble car murders, which the case is often known as, is a bit of a misnomer really I think. I much preferred the carbon copy murders myself as an umbrella term for the whole case and hence it the reason that I've used it for the episode title. And unsurprisingly, the press and public jumped upon the sensational angle that there was a double killer out there who had committed carbon copy killings. Even reportedly to the extent that the Sheffield Road regularly had mile-long traffic jams on it, caused by ghouls wanting to visit rural Clodhall Lane to see the scene where the bodies had been discovered for themselves. I can't really say anything there, having been to a stack of scenes of past crimes myself over my time. Once again then, all police leave was cancelled and a large murder investigation got underway, once again led by Detective Superintendent Leonard Stretton, and as the killings seemed to be carbon copy, so too then were the investigative procedures. By the time a week from the murder had passed, more than 10,000 people had been spoken to in a widespread area across Derbyshire and the surrounding counties. Whilst a picture of George Stobbs' life had been made, and though they had linked both killings very early on in this second investigation, police were by that time to know just how much a carbon copy the murders were. For at the post-mortem, which as with William Elliot was conducted by Dr David Price, Stobbs' injuries were found to have been, I quote, inflicted with very great force indeed by a blunt instrument having a pointed and semicircular surface, thought most likely to be as a result of toes or heels. Similar to William Elliot, Stobbs had marks to the rear of his body, but that could this time be determined as him being a receptive gay person. 
Stubbs's wife was to later tell police when she went to identify his body later that morning that Stubbs had gotten home later than usual the previous evening at about 8pm and within an hour had once again gone out, telling his wife he was going back to his laboratory before heading out for a drink at one of the pubs he'd become a familiar face at. It was confirmed by police that Stobbs had never returned to work the previous evening, and it was as equally quickly confirmed that he'd been seen shortly after 9pm by several people in the company of a younger man, a heavily built, dark-haired man, in the Spread Eagle pub in Chesterfield. Had Stobbs instead gone straight to the pub for a predetermined rendezvous, where he'd met his killer? If the publicity surrounding William Elliot's murder had been vast, around this carbon copy murder, it was immense. To the point where even Bill Atkinson, who'd been attacked by the killer the previous year, jumped on the bandwagon and claimed that he considered going a bit death wish himself, as he told the Daily Herald newspaper a week after the murder. I'm going after the killer. He tried to get me once, and I don't care if I get killed trying to track him down. I know what he looks like. I last saw him at Christmas. He is a local man. I used to drink in the same corner of the pub as the victims, and we all looked alike. I shall trap the killer with my own methods. Police even posted an undercover officer daily in Chesterfield Public Library, thinking that the killer may be gloating over his crimes and devouring publicity by reading each day the different newspaper accounts of the killings that the library held in its newspaper archives with orders for the officer to note anyone displaying unusual interest in the case. The same inquiry was made with news agents across the Derbyshire area, to note anyone who may have increased the newspaper consumption. But at that time, all police knew for certain was where Stobbs' body had been found, and where his car was found. There was no way to tell his exact final movements on the night he was murdered, nor where he'd exactly been killed until, as we said, until about a week after the murder. A woman living on a housing estate nearby to Park Road was out walking in Gladwin Wood, bordering the Stubbing Court estate in the nearby village of Wingerworth, when she found a blood-stained diary lying in the undergrowth there. Nearby to it was a distinct fountain pen, a penknife, a set of keys and a pair of spectacles. The woman took the items to police, who was soon able to identify the items as belonging to the murdered George Stobbs. Showing them exactly where she discovered the items, an examination of the scene soon revealed extensive blood staining and trampling to the undergrowth nearby, leading police to be able to deduce that George Stobbs had first been lured to, then savagely attacked, in lonely Gladwin Wood, before being dragged or carried some 80 yards and hoisted over a dry stone wall. He had then, in his own car, been taken up to Clodhall Lane and dumped before his very distinct car was then driven back by his killer and abandoned in Park Road. But it was shortly after this that the Chesterfield police had learned from Jerry Dodd of the astonishing revelations of Michael Copeland by his proximity to a second savage murder and having spoken to the local reporter who Copeland had regaled with the account of Gunther's murder they had no doubts about who their suspect number one was. They subsequently descended on the home that Copeland shared with his father, 
and gathered up all items of his clothing for forensic analysis. But nothing that they took away for examination was found to register in any way with anything that was found at the murder scene, and in no way did Copeland appear to be related to any of the evidence that police had in the case. True, he had no real alibi for his movements on the evening of the murder, claiming simply that he'd been at home, but he denied ever having seen or even heard of George Stobbs. It was soon clear to police that they were never going to get him to confess to the murders, so they instead tried a different tactic, to break him down stealthily. Going forward then, Copeland was constantly shadowed by police. Wherever he went, he found a police officer near him. Hardly a waking moment of his life went unmonitored. Against the tough approach of the ordinary CID officers, Chesterfield Police played Detective Chief Inspector Tom Pete, who became a kindly, avuncular figure to Copeland, and who managed to develop enough of a rapport with him that he was able to have a series of informal chats with him. In at least one of these chats, Copeland told the inspector that he had killed both Elliot and Stobbs, but of course refused to sign any statement to this effect, saying, It would only make trouble for my family. He was also somewhat contradictory, as he told other police officers at this time, I know I've done wrong in the past, and I know I'm only suspected of the murder because of what I told Mr. Pete about killing Elliot and Stobbs. I know I'm a psychopath, and have a personality which could make me commit murder, but I'm sorry, I've not murdered anyone. Now a cat and mouse game such as this cannot go on indefinitely, can it? So who would give first? The answer was, unsurprisingly, Michael Copeland, and it took him just three months to do so. In June 1961, Copeland was involved in an argument in a Chesterfield pub that degenerated into a drunken brawl, during which he lashed out at a police sergeant and wounded him. It was by no means the first time Copeland had battled with police officers, being a bit of a three-pint rocky when he'd been drinking. But this time, he landed himself four months in Her Majesty's Prison, Winston Green in Birmingham, for his troubles. Both press and police continued to maintain a lively interest in Michael Copeland, and when he was released from prison, he told the News of the World newspaper, so glad that that shit rag has long since ceased, by the way, he told them that he was, I quote, the victim of circumstances and had been persecuted by the police over the unsolved killings. He explained to reporters that on the night William Elliot had been murdered, he had been involved in a fight in a pub in Chesterfield, explaining away why witnesses had seen him with blood-stained clothing in a fish and chip chop that evening. The night that Gunther Helmbracht had been murdered, Copeland claimed, he repeated his claim that he'd been attacked and stabbed in the leg by a pair of German youths, and on the night George Stobbs had been killed, he had simply spent the night at home. Now several years later, Detective Chief Superintendent Leonard Stretton, when recalling the case, told an author that at no time ever since the murder of George Stobbs had any officers in the Derbyshire Constabulary had a single doubt about who was responsible for each of the murders. It was Michael Copeland, and the reason? His deep-seated hatred of homosexuals. 
Several people by that time had come forward to the investigating team and confided discreetly to them that William Elliot was indeed a gay man, and evidence was found at post-mortem that suggested that George Stobbs was also, but the motive for the killing of Gunther Helmbrecht remained shrouded in mystery, for Gunther certainly wasn't gay. When Copeland was released from prison, he also instantly found another police officer tied to his side, this time Chief Inspector Ernest Bradshaw, who was to go on to become, in the later words of Copeland's solicitor, his guide, philosopher and friend. Even to the point when on at least three occasions, the officer lent Copeland money when he appeared to be down and out. The Chief Inspector, through his befriending of the youth, was to discover that he was a skilled and gifted artist, that he composed poetry, and that he appeared to be at his happiest in the countryside. Copeland had even once asked the officer to take him there, saying he thought that it may be a better arena for him to express himself in. The officer found Copeland a strange and moody individual though, with a bizarre obsession for the number 11. His mother and a pet dog that the family had 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 died on dates involving this number, one of the murder victims had died on the 11th, and when Copeland had taken part in identity parades, guess at which number he'd stood. But as much as his every move was attempted to be shadowed, it was simply impossible for Derbyshire police to be alongside him for 24 hours every single day for months, with no end in sight. Derbyshire police, for those of you with a long memory, aren't up there with my highest to commend force for the way they did things after the catalogue of errors we heard that they'd committed last series on the show when we looked at the case of the horrific and tragic murder of Lynn Siddons and her family's fight to get justice for her. As I mentioned earlier, it's still one that's in the back catalogue that is, folks. So they couldn't be alongside Copeland 24-7 and twice, when he was alone, he attempted suicide. On the first occasion, he was found unconscious in a churchyard in Old Whittington after taking a concoction of a quarter of a bottle of sleeping tablets and half a bottle of whiskey, but was rushed to hospital and had his life saved following a stomach pump. Shortly after his release from this attempt, however, he was discovered in the boiler room of the same church with a deep self-inflicted gash in his arm. By May 1963, he was convicted of shop-breaking and imprisoned, and was almost on the verge of being certified as insane when he was once again in Winston Green, but then his condition started to show signs of improvement. Police efforts to try to bring charges against Copeland for the two Derbyshire murders and the killing in Germany, however, continued to be dogged by events that pointed more towards his culpability, but frustratingly, were ultimately not enough to bring charges. For example, in September 1963, an envelope marked private was delivered to Chesterfield Police, which when opened, contained scraps of an anonymous handwritten letter dated June 29, 1961, which read as follows. Dear Anne, I'm sorry for not turning up for our last date. I got a bit scared of what you got to know about me. I'm very frightened now because I was hoping it was going to be forgotten. I did not want anyone else to know about it. It's been hard to keep it quiet so long, then all of a sudden things start to come to life again. I had to kill her. Now at this point in the letter, 
the rest of the line was torn and indecipherable. On the following line, only the words, I could have been, were legible, and on the following line after that, the word, anyway. It then continued, His car was the only thing I could have used to get away, although I've never driven a bubble car before. Luck got me as far as I did. You'll understand why I've stopped seeing you. It was not fair to. Several other words following this were illegible, but the letter concluded with husband, and following a few more undecipherable words, ended with the sign-off, goodbye for now. There's no information available as to who handed this letter in to police, though it's fair to assume that it was the recipient, Anne, but it was reported that it was subsequently passed to a graphologist, who compared it to the handwriting of the police's prime suspect. It was his opinion that the anonymous letter pointed very strongly to have been authored by Michael Copeland. And as sudden as it was unexpected, Copeland then seemingly decided one Sunday morning, the 17th of November 1963, to simply throw in the towel. He had apparently just broken off a relationship with his girlfriend of two years, Marie Smith, from nearby Old Whittington, and picking up the telephone, he called Chief Inspector Bradshaw and said simply, I killed Elliot and Stobbs and the German boy. Taken immediately to Chesterfield Police Station, here Copeland was alleged to have said, at first, I quote, What evidence would you need for me to force your hand? The truth is, I went out with the intention to meet a homo to rob, but I told the truth about not robbing Elliot and Stobbs. I didn't kill them for money, but there's nothing nice about that. I killed them because it was something I hated. He then wrote out a full confession, which in part read as follows. Elliot was a homosexual and wanted me to commit an offence with him. I'd seen him around those pubs where they gather. One night we got talking and he asked me to go to a pub in Baslow, so I did. we just got into Clodhall Lane, not where he was found, but at the other end, and he stopped the car and wanted me to commit the offence. I hit him on the jaw. I hate things like that. I really do. I wanted to kill him. I got a stone from the wall and hit him with it. Then I loaded the body into the car and dumped it at the other end of the lane. I drove back in the car, parked it while I got some fish and chips, then I left the car in Park Road. When asked if the same thing had happened with Stobbs, Copeland said, More or less, yes. I met him in the same pub. He spoke to me, and I knew he was one of those. I hate them, and I decided to kill him. It was my idea to go to Stubbing Court. We left the car by the stream and had a walk around. Then I hit him with a hammer. I dragged the body back to the car and dumped it in Clodhall Lane again. I had a few blood stains on my suit, but I washed them off. But he did express some remorse for the murder of young Gunther Helmbrecht, saying, I'm really sorry about that one. That was really brutal. I didn't even know who he was. They were making love, you see, like I've seen my mother do many times. I hated them for it. I followed them and stabbed him. I don't know how many times I just kept stabbing him. While I was doing it, I accidentally stabbed myself in the leg. 
So this statement was written up and placed in front of Copeland for him to sign, but he then looked at police officers and shook his head. He refused to sign it, having changed his mind. Since he'd volunteered the statement, and since there was no corroborating evidence by the confession he'd just made, police were then forced to release Michael Copeland without any charges. You just couldn't make it up, could you? The long hunt to nail the man that police knew was at least a triple murderer was now back almost where it had begun. Throughout 1964, the cat and mouse game continued then. Copeland continued to be watched and shadowed, the investigation moving less than John Denver does now, but in October of that year, the Labour government came into office, and part of its new broom being the passing of an Offences Against the Person Act. Now this act now allowed British courts to be able to try a British citizen for murder or manslaughter committed either abroad or on a foreign ship, even where the victim was not British. This now meant that by law then, Copeland could now be questioned in Britain about the killing of Gunther Helmbrecht in Germany. Satisfied that they had a case against him, Chesterfield police arrested Michael Copeland a month later on a charge of murdering the German boy, and by now well and truly broken down because of the constant surveillance, Copeland once again confessed to all three of the murders, giving almost the verbatim story he told the previous year, and this time, you'll be thankful to know, he signed his confession, being charged with the three murders on the 11th of December 1964. Yet he was still defiant, when he appeared at Chesterfield Magistrates Court on Tuesday the 15th of December, dressed in his standard court attire of black leather jacket, dark shirt and grey trousers. When asked if he had anything to say after the charges were read out, Copeland replied, I would like to apply for legal aid, and you'd better give the police some legal aid, because they will need it. Triple R bastard, eh? Michael Copeland stood trial for three counts of murder at Birmingham Assizes on the 15th of March 1965, but remained defiant to the end. Issuing a plea of not guilty, he claimed that his confession had been forced out of him by the constant police harassment. He claimed that police had hounded him and he had only confessed to force police to charge him so he would be acquitted at trial to end the intolerable strain. I quote. Sounds a bit of a baldrick plan, that does, doesn't it? Concentrating upon the Derbyshire murders first, Graeme Swanick QC, prosecuting, told the court in his opening address Copeland is of outstanding physique. His appearance suggests physical strength, and it will be the submission of the prosecution that evidence relating to the deaths of these two men reveals how that strength was employed. It is a story that explores the dark areas of the mind. Mr Swanick then went on to detail each of the murders, highlighting to the all-male jury the nine points of similarity between the two killings, namely that both bodies were found in the same place, the victims found not more than a hundred yards apart, that neither man had been killed there, the type of injuries to the victim, the fact that grass had been placed over the victims' faces to conceal them, that there were semen stains on the clothing, 
that there were copious amounts of blood in both vehicles, that both killings featured elements concerning homosexuality, that both men were last seen alive on a street near to where Copeland lived, and that both of the victims' vehicles were found abandoned in the same street. The jury was then told details of the murder of Gunther Helmbrecht and how Copeland had fast become a prime suspect in the crime due to the stab wound to the leg he'd received at almost the exact same time. The court then heard of Copeland's multiple unofficial confessions to police officers after his return to the UK and how one officer, Sergeant Trevor Evans, when he was given evidence, said that Copeland had told Inspector Pete who had since that time passed away. When the devil tells a killer to use violence, he's got to use it. Superficially, I think I have a killer instinct, like a boxer. He also told how Copeland would arrogantly say nothing except bingo during questioning. Now there was indeed a full house in court. Do you see what I did there? Some 40 witnesses were to appear for the prosecution over the course of the 14-day trial, including 13 who had been flown over from Germany to give evidence regarding the murder of Gunther Helmbrecht. Copeland would at times angrily interject with these if something was said that he disagreed with, and was warned more than once about maintaining decorum in the court. When it came to him giving evidence on his own behalf, as the final witness called, over 17 hours in the witness box, Copeland simply denied everything and claimed that he hadn't killed any of the three victims. He'd never spoken to William Elliot or George Stobbs, and he was just playing with the police when he talked about the significance of the number 11 in his life. He denied having any gay tendencies himself, he didn't frequent gay pubs, and it wasn't true to say that even if he wasn't gay himself, he was nevertheless fascinated by gay people. He agreed under questioning that he was not the same man he'd been in 1960, telling the court, I can't express it, that's the torment of it. It was through the gossip caused by the police following me about in the way that they did, and it caused me to go to pieces. It had terrible effects, and I just had to confess what those effects were. I decided to blacken myself more than I did on the previous occasion. I more or less tried to act the part of a murderer making a confession. My ultimate object was to try to make Mr Bradshaw charge me. He claimed that he'd introduced both improbability and impossibility into his confession, so if he was charged and these things were verified, people would know they were false. Judge Ashworth asked him, you were making yourself an escape route, having put your head in the net by a confession, you were leaving a back door open. Copeland replied, Yes sir, if the police really thought they were able to prove this charge, then there was nothing to stop them from doing so four years ago, when I would have been more able to defend myself. Which makes about as much sense as a bloody aftershave advert, doesn't it? Mr. Rudolph Lyons QC, acting on behalf of Copeland, said in his closing address to the court that although there was no suggestion that the prisoner had been physically abused, he had been questioned and shadowed for so long by the police that it amounted to mental abuse, saying, He had been subjected to a type of refined torture that even ancient China never devised, trailing him, taunting him, harrowing him, haunting him 24 hours a day, month after month, 
relentlessly, ruthlessly, ruining his health, ruining his prospective marriage, rendering him unable to work, but too afraid to prosecute. You watched him carefully during that long ordeal of 17 hours in the witness box, utterly spiritless, lethargic, almost as though he were under the influence of drugs, allowing questions to go over his head, as often as not clearly unable to assimilate the questions he was being asked. Where was the arrogant Michael Copeland who had the spirit, if not the lack of wisdom, to call Army SIB officer Captain Lambert a bombastic bastard, who met a police officer's questions with a facetious bingo, and who led the police a merry dance around Chatsworth Park? Mr Swanick, meanwhile, for his closing address, told the court, Is the explanation of these crimes not this? that there are two sides to Copeland's personality, ordinarily quiet, artistic and country-loving, but when his passion and hatred are aroused, particularly in connection with sex, the devil rises in him and he's got to use violence. If these confessions are genuine, that is the end of each of these three cases, because they are complete confessions of murder. Copeland's story that these confessions were false was, he continued, a desperate attempt to escape now from the consequences of having confessed to crimes under the pressure of conscience, thought up as the net closed around him. He is a man of somewhat unusual makeup. He is no fool. He has a brain to think things out and plan a course of action with some skill. On Friday the 2nd of April 1965, it took the jury just three hours' deliberation to find Michael Copeland guilty of all three murders, and he was sentenced to death, opting to say nothing and remaining impassive in the dock as sentence was passed upon him, watched from the public gallery by his distraught father. But a reprieve for him was inevitable, really, as capital punishment was by that time already effectively doomed in the UK. The law was being scrutinised just then, and no one would be likely hanged if it was more than likely that in just a few months more, hanging would be abolished anyway. Nevertheless, Copeland spent more than a month in the death cell at HMP Winston Green before on the 13th of May 1965, the then Home Secretary Sir Frank Soskis recommended a reprieve for Copeland and his sentence was commuted to one of life imprisonment. Perhaps though, he may not have been hanged even if the law was not about to be changed, for although he'd not been declared insane, it was thought that doctors at his trial were prepared to testify that he was suffering from a serious mental abnormality. A marginal note to the saga as well was the discovery by police at just how widespread the gay community was in the Chesterfield area at the time, as we said earlier. It was 1967 before it was decriminalised. During the course of the inquiry, no less than three men in the Chesterfield area alone committed suicide by gassing themselves following being questioned by the police, save the shame of public discovery of their homosexuality. As I said before, it seems almost draconian today. It really does that such a law was ever even in place. It's just, it's terrible. Draconian. But for people to feel such fear or shame or possible discovery that it drove them to suicide, well, it's simply tragic, that is, and undoubtedly wasn't helped by newspapers at the time either. 
One account that I found through researching from the reminiscences of a then local reporter at the time who'd covered the case claimed that national newspapers descended on Chesterfield to cover the story of the murders, smelling the sensational angle of them. One News of the World story headline concerning the case, he remembers, was headlined along the lines of, I quote, Chesterfield, where people are as bent and twisted as the spire on the parish church. Yes, unreal that, isn't it, eh? And that is just yet another reason why such a shit rag as the news of the world deservedly was forced to fold. Absolutely vile. Michael Copeland himself, meanwhile, served 31 years and 9 months of his life sentence, only coming to the attention of the press once during that time, when it was reported that he'd been involved in a fight with Ian Brady when both were incarcerated in HMP Durham in 1970. He was released on licence in 1997, but was later recalled to his life sentence in the early 2000s, following another suicide attempt he'd made, and for breaching conditions of his life licensing, reportedly struggling to adapt to life outside prison. A former prisoner who'd been held on the same wing as Copeland at Wood Hill Prison up to 2011 described him as a gentle, inoffensive, elderly man who rarely spoke of his crimes, and who continued, even in his later years, to be an incredibly talented artist. So talented was Copeland that his paintings of countryside scenes done in detail from memory, would often be touted for sums of up to a thousand pounds, yet Copeland would never sell any of his work. Reportedly, a close friend of Copeland's later revealed that each of the paintings depicted the moorland where he dumped his victims' bodies. No happy little accidents there, then. In poor health, transferred to HMP Sudbury in Derbyshire in 2011, Michael Copeland was one of more than 40 British killers who had spent in total more than 40 years behind bars for murder, before his death from natural causes on the 21st of November 2013, aged 75. I found this to be an absolutely fascinating case when I looked into it, one that was totally unfamiliar to me before I discovered it in my library and selected it a while back for a future episode. And then it did end up being suggested by a couple of listeners. So here it is. And it's one that raises countless questions to me as well. Deep ones like, should Copeland have been certified? Was he clearly mentally ill? Was he gay himself and struggling with his sexuality? Lashed out at something he himself felt ashamed of? Was that the reason for his pathological hatred of gay men? Or did he possibly commit other killings? I would have thought probably not personally due to his constant confessions and his habitual behaviour at crime scenes. Surely other killings would have come to light. You would have thought anyway. But then other more trivial questions I made a note of too. Like, why did the bubble car crash? Did he do that deliberately or was it an accident? Did the brakes fail and did it roll away? Why leave the cars on the same street or transport George Stobbs' body from where he was killed to where he was found? I don't know. It's a tale that raises so many questions and I'm really just thinking out loud. Neither of my balls are crystal ones. 
Now, there were a pair of unsolved murders in London around the same period that police looked at as possibly being linked to the Derbyshire carbon copy killings, which you never know, may pop up covered here on the show at a later date, massive hint there, and Copeland was also for a time a suspect in another, as still unsolved, Nottinghamshire murder that most certainly will be featured at a later date, but that's a tale for another time. The presence of police watching Copeland for so long almost certainly saved others from similar horrific deaths though, didn't it? Because this was a young man who'd become a triple murderer in less than a year, and with the violence used in each crime being somewhat overkill, to say the least, I believe that he'd gotten a taste for it. And I don't believe his sole motive can be laid at simple homophobia, because if it was, then why kill 15-year-old Gunther? I think it more likely that Copeland was a sexually motivated psychopathic killer who struck with little prior planning whenever the urge took him, when he was sexually aroused perhaps. And a scary thought is, had he kept his mouth shut, he could have effectively carried on and perhaps claimed a much higher death toll, as if three wasn't horror enough of course. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? I would love as ever hearing your thoughts and feedback concerning the episode Carbon Coffee and the tale of Michael Copeland, which you can do so in the thread that's up for the episode in the show's Facebook discussion group, or you can through any of the show's social media platforms really. I'm always happy to hear from you all wherever you'd like. I'd like to remind you all as well that if you have any suggestions for a case that you would like to hear here on the show, perhaps one that's long piqued your interest or you may even have some sort of connection to, it might be locality, someone that you know might be involved, whatever, then I'm very approachable and you won't find me ungrateful either. Perhaps even it's one you'd like to research and write up yourself to form part of a listener episode, because we haven't had one yet this series, and I'm curating now, so get back in touch if you wish, folks. With that, it's time for me to bugger off now then and crack back on with the next enthusiast tale, coming to your ears very soon. I thank you as always so much for joining me here today for a tale I hope you found as interesting and informative as I did. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.